Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 339. This program is dedicated by Aaron Pels in honor of his mother, Mrs. Speaker, and his brothers. So, this is the week of Parshas Va'era, going into the Shchodesh Shvat. Yesterday we benched the month, the new month of Shvat. So let's begin with that topic, which always sets the tone for the week, the spirit of the week, the energy of the week, as the Alter Rebbe said, love mid the tzayt, to live with the times. It's a very powerful statement. Many of us don't really always stop to appreciate it. Living with the times. Usually people think living with the times means living with the events that are happening now in Washington, in other parts of the world, in your own community, in your home. Living with the times, the real times, what's really happening in Zman, in time right now, is what we read in the Parsha, the Torah perspective, God's perspective on time, on the events in time. And when you live, look at it that way, Torah is Nitzchis, the Torah is eternal. And it's Heroa B'chaim, Torah is Chaim, Heroa, guidance and directive and instruction for our lives. And it tells us what the energy, what the vibes are of this week. That's truly living with the times. It also lifts you up to a higher level. And then when you look at the events around you, they are inspired and informed by this bigger picture. So what's the theme of Pashas Va'era? The theme of Pashas Va'era, ostensibly, is actually one of the darkest chapters in the Torah, maybe the darkest. It's the throes, the abyss of Mitzrayim. The Jews are suffering greatly at the hands of the Egyptians. And we know Mitzrayim doesn't just mean Egypt of then, it also is Egypt of today, Mitzrayim of today. Every constraint, every limitation, every fear, every insecurity, any dire straits and boundaries that limit us from being who we should be, from serving God in the fullest possible way. The very nature of Golis itself, it says all the Golis are called in the name of Mitzrayim. Even though there was a Golis Bavl and a Golis Edem, which we are in now, they're all called in the name Mitzrayim. Not just because Mitzrayim is the root of all the Goliaths, but the very word Mitzrayim is, uh, captures and reflects the essence of Goliath's displacement, a state of being trapped, of being locked, being limited. So this is the chapter where we read about the darkest part of that. It started, of course, in Shmois and ends in a very serious note where Moshe says to Hashem, When Moshe sees what the Jews are enduring, and he sees Pare bathing in the blood of Jewish children and all the other genocides and injustices and um, afflictions that the Egyptians imposed on the Jewish people and perpetrated upon them. He doesn't look to Pare, doesn't look at the Egyptians, he talks to God. And initially, God actually rebukes him. He says, the others did not say that to me. They never challenged me like that. And interestingly, when we start Pasha's Ve'eda, he's actually rewarded for his chutzpah, so to speak. What does the Ba'eda say? Ba'eda Hashem says, I revealed myself to the Ovis, to the patriarchs. But with them, Shmi Avayalei Shaddai, I revealed myself, with my name Kel Shaddai, which means a certain defined expression of divinity and godliness. Kel Shaddai, like the word Shaddai, one of the interpreters means Shaddai, Shaddai. Shomar Dai, it was the name God used essentially to create limitations in this world, including the limitation of Mitzrayim ultimately. Dai. And Bishmi Havai Eloina Daitilahem. But my name Havai then, Shema Etzem, Shema Mafurish, Shema Mafurish, Shema Meyuchod, the Tetragrammaton, the four letter name of Hashem, Yudke Vovke, that I did not reveal to them. Chsidis discusses. We see the name Havaya in Sefer Breshis. So it speaks about Havaya Latata, Havaya Dela'ela. There's a lower level of Havaya, the higher level of Havaya. But to you I will reveal it. This is how Moshe, first Moshe, challenges God. And God says, yes, and to you I'll reveal Havaya. Because at the end of the day, Moshe's challenge, though it was crossing a line in certain ways, but it was ultimately a sign of his deep love of God and of the people. And expecting from God more. And that's what God responds then now that you're in Mitzrayim, I have to reveal a new level, a name Havaya. The others did not need that name yet. 
or they were not ready for it, or the world was not yet in that place. But here, in this dark place, we need even greater strengths. And that's what God provides, Shem Havaya. In the Pesukim itself, it's not clear what is Havaya, but when you know the Mephorshim, the commentaries, and especially in Kabbalah and Chassidus, you come to learn the Shem Havaya is God in His full glory. It's still a name, Shmi, but it's a name that expresses not the defined energy of, we'll call it Mamalakalam, that relates to and is tailored toward creating existence, but now we're talking about going beyond existence to free us from the limitations of the tzimtzum, which is the first time there's the concealment. And from all the limitations of Mitzrayim, we need Shem Havaya. Later in the Asar Sadibis, we're going to say, Nechi Hashem Alekecha, Mitzrayim. So the commentaries on Chassidus cites the question, why doesn't he say something bigger? I am your God, that created heaven and earth. Why does it say the one that took you out of Egypt? Because creating heaven and earth for God is not the big thing. Taking you out of Egypt. Once there's a world, and the world is bound to certain laws and rules that govern the universe. And then, to be able to free someone from that limit, limited world without destroying the world. In this case, to take you out of the mitzorim v'gvulim, the limitations and the boundaries and the constraints that I mentioned. And you can fill in the blanks whatever fits your life, that requires anoyichi Hashem elekecha. Not just elekecha, not just havaya elekecha, but anoyichi havaya elekecha. So whenever a person is in a situation, a regular situation, as we all know, the strengths we need to get out of a certain case may not be so intense. But if you get stuck in a very deep place, in a pit, or psychologically and emotionally and spiritually in a dark place, you need much more strength to pull someone out from there. So they gave, granted that to Moshe, Shem Havaya. The lesson to us is very clear. Whatever we may get, be going through, and there are dark moments, the dark experiences, people have had losses, tragedies during this pandemic, other different types of tragedies. We all have our challenges. Comes a parsha in the Torah and says, I'm with you in your challenges, I'm with you in your pains, I'm with you in your uh, afflictions. And we will dig deeper. I will reveal a deeper part of me, God says. But we have to do our part in digging deeper, not giving up, obviously, but on the contrary, to dig deeper and access the deeper resources, the Havaya that's within each one of us. Because the Neshama has used Shem Havaya, like the Alter Rebbe Lechut Pasha De'e, in other places, explains how the Neshama, too, has all four levels of Yud Ke So that's the basic, simple lesson. We're also going to Rosh Chedeshvat, the Shreder Shvat is the end of this week, and uh, which, of course, for us Chassidim especially, the Shreder Shvat is always a special day. But for us Chassidim, it is the Shreder Shvat that begins the month of Yud Shvat. Yud Shvat, Tov Shem Pei Aleph, will be 70 years from the Rebbe first assumed officially the Nesias of the Deir Shvi and the Maimer Basilagani said, said 70 years ago this year, Yud Shvat will be on a Shabbos, as it was in the first year Tov Shin Yud, when it was on the Shabbos, the Stalkus. So Yud Shvat will be, uh, we'll have a special Yud Shvat edition next week. Preparation for that, talk about Boslagani, it's lessons for us and many other details. But I'll focus on Ishchei Shvat. The Rebbe brings, that Ishchei Shvat is also mentioned in the Teda, right at the beginning of Dvarim. When Moshe begins, Eilu Dvarim Asher Dibar Moshe, it was Echad Lachei what happened? Moshe began to explain the Torah. And he would go for 37 days until Zion Adar, when there was the Istalkus of Moshe Rabbeinu, the whole Sefer Dvarim. What's Bayeres HaTayra Azeis? Says Rashi, Beshivim Loshen. He explained it, he translated it into 70 languages. Not just explained it, translated it. And that, the Rebbe says, was one of the main things that the Friedrich Rebbe introduced. The beginning of translating Torah, Chassidus especially, into, or Torah in general, and Tzchidus especially, into 70 languages, into all languages. The Rebbe, of course, took it to a whole other level. Now, translation is not just translation. It means taking the concepts and bringing it to people who may not yet have knowledge in the holy tongue. That means also be'echus, in quality. It's not yet, they're not yet ready. They weren't initiated. They weren't educated. So it's the essence of Yefutsa, especially of these later generations. So the Shechidah Shvat has already the message the Reish Chedesh includes the whole month, of course, also Yud Shvat, when the Aveda of the Fidi Kareb then comes to its full 
realization that, and as the Rebbe, and the Rebbe continued it, the idea of bringing chassidus b'shivim lashem, which of course is very much the basis of this whole program, my life chassidus applied. Besides that I speak in English, it's also um, the t- content is to take the ideas from the original while preserving their integrity, but presenting them in a way that we all can understand in contemporary terms that relates to every type of person, that we can apply it and personalize it and internalize it in our lives. So there we have it. And, and on the contrary, when you're able to bring it into chutzah, even into shivim lashon, that demonstrates that you're digging deeper, like I said, with Shem Avaya, you're digging deeper and reaching even deeper strengths to be able to see any person, a person who can explain an idea only to those that are on the same level, colleagues and so on, is one thing. If a person can take the idea and explain it to people from in a different paradigm altogether, a different idiom, completely from a different background, shows that they understand, they have to dig deeper to understand it even better to be able to explain it to others while preserving the original, the integrity of the original. Okay, with that, okay, let me give you some cross-references to this topic. So, Va'era I've spoken about in, in episodes 51, 97, 196, 242, 292, and Ashrei in episodes 52, 98, 197, 243, and 293. That is a good opportunity. What am I referring to? The previous programs. People ask all the time, where can you see the archives of the two, 338 previous episodes of my life? It's already seven years into this. We're almost beginning the eighth year. So you go to chassidusapply.com. It's a full, robust website with all the previous episodes, including a forum where you can submit any question anonymously, as well as other resources on Chassidus, Ayim Beis, Samachvov, Sadiq Dalad, and of course the essays that have come in the last six years. Essays are now also creative submissions that apply Chassidus either through an essay or through a creative musical piece or poetry or even embroidery and so on. Check it out at chassidusapply.com. Okay. So inevitably, of course, since Chassidus applied, living with the times, so we spoke about the real living with the times from the Torah and God's perspective, how do we apply this now to the actual times that we are living in, meaning the events of this week? So it's inevitable, as, as always, that questions come in regarding the events that have happened this week, especially here in this country, and everything's Ashgacha Pratis. So even though we don't immerse ourselves in politics, and that's not what defines our lives, and that's not what entertain that we, that that that, that uh, I was going to say entertains our lives. I don't like the word entertains in, in this context, but we definitely have a tighter view on everything that happens in this world. Stako baraisa bara alma, including sometimes even the nonsense that people go through, and sometimes things that are more than nonsense. So here we go. From a tighter perspective, what are we to make of the recent events in Washington? Now, if you're not familiar with what happened. As the Rebbe would say many times by Fabrengen. But those that are aware, I'll talk about it. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I was profoundly sad with the invasion of the capital last week. It seems, like, it seems like we are heading towards civil war. What would the Rebbe say about it and advise us to do? Thanks. Some more questions regard to this. I summed it up in one of them. Let me address this, then I'll go to a few others. So, as someone humbly sat at the feet of the Rebbe, I always take the cue of how the Rebbe would approach something. People think the Rebbe spoke about every event that happened, not necessarily. But he definitely had a perspective on everything that happened. So how would the Rebbe react? I can't speculate. I don't know if he'd speak about it or not. The Rebbe always liked to look at things in bigger context. When he saw events in this country, he would always talk about the need for having God in our homes, in our schools. That without that, we don't have accountability, an eye that sees, an ear that hears. So let's start just on the basic level. Any crime, any act that attacks, that's violent, that hurts somebody, that ultimately kills someone, is never good. doesn't matter what excuse you have for it. It's just not acceptable. You need a law, a law and order is one of the Sheva Mitzvahs Bein Neach, but it's also logical. You need accountability. You have people with different opinions. You're entitled to different opinions. So that's number one. Not even getting into the who or what. That would come from any side of the aisle, 
everything, any type of act of violence is, is, should, be, is, should be criticized and should be prosecuted properly. So I think that's a given without even a question. It's completely nonpartisan what I just said. Regarding this particular event, is it also being politicized by parties? That's inevitable. Some will use it to demonstrate how, Mr. how President Trump was always that way and he incited it and so on. The people who are pro-Trump will say, okay, maybe it got out of hand a bit, but we were protesting the unfair and fraudulent elections. So how do you deal with something like that from a Tata point of view? So we have a Tata. Everybody is subjective. The Tata's approach to it, we're not one side or another side. What does God want? God wants honest accountability. Yes, I know people are very passionate and feel that the, the elections were stolen. Possibly, and I'm not going to deny the possibility. Maybe previous elections were also stolen. Who knows? Suddenly now, more than ever. So what do you do in a country like this? There's dinah de machusadina, the laws of the land. You take it to court if necessary. You take your grievances and you try to resolve it. Now let's say you say this the courts are stacked. Okay, so then what do you do? We take it to the streets? Is that the approach? The Rebbe would always laud this country's principles. In God we trust on our currency. E pluribus unum, from the many one. That all of us are created equal, with inalienable rights, including freedom of expression. Correct. But what do you do when you have everybody has a freedom of expression and people's expression or opinions are different? So you have courts of law. Going back to one of the Yusaydas, the foundations of all history, all civilization, need some recourse. Now, if those courts you feel are, are, are uh, corrupt, so then do something about it. Elect new officials. But there's no question that violence is not the way to go. There's never been the approach. This country's strength lies on this ability to take diversity and find some type of harmony, some type of balance. Now, I know it's polarized more than ever. And there are many parts of it that I would say I criticize all sides because that's what happens. This country, in a sense, becomes almost like, I don't want to compare it because it sounds frivolous to, uh, to sports, that when you're, such a, you're so extreme, you're a Boston Red Sox fan, you hate every Yankee. Even though that a player in the Yankees ends up in Boston, then you love him. So it's not about reality. It's about the partisanships, about parochialism. It's about clubs. It's frankly about conformity and very superficial. In many ways, that spilled over into the country in general, and the media fans this. Intentionally, not intentionally, maybe that's how you get ratings. I don't trust any of it, to be honest, on any side of the aisle. So how do you get clarity? You, you, from a perspective of chassidus applied, you learn Tehidu, you learn chassidus, you try to get a perspective on life, and then you look at these events with clear eyes. Instead of the other way around, seeing and becoming trapped in the quicksand of all these polarized positions. And that's regarding everything. You try to find where's a brekalemis, something true in all of this. And frankly, for some people, maybe just sit and learn Tehidu and chassidus and doesn't affect your life directly. You can get so caught up in the passions of it that that itself becomes a mitzrayim. That's why I began, we have to live with the times, we have to live with the Torah times, with what the Torah says. And then you look at these events, which leads me to the next question that someone asked. What attitudes should we take to President Trump today? Well, here again, as you know, I'm not going to take positions pro-Trump, anti-Trump. It's not where I come from. I take a position pro-God and pro-Torah, and what the Torah and God says about anything, we know. The hearts of kings and leaders is in the hands of God. Mr. Trump was elected four years ago. It was a surprise. So it was clear that there was some higher visible hand. There are many things that he did were good. But it's not because he's necessarily a great person or a bad person. And for that matter, Joe Biden, or for that matter, Barack Obama, or any president. They have a certain measure of their free will, if you wish. Some will argue, is it free will? Is it God leading them? But whatever, they can make the container for God's will to be manifest or not. And different presidents did different things. Some of them did great things. Some did bad things. And the same thing I would apply to Trump. He's not unique in that sense. It's unique that it was a surprise. Someone not from the political world. Someone literally upset all the expectations. And did many good things, and that's what we have to applaud. The things that Trump and his personality and others that can rub you the wrong way, and there are times that he behaves in ways that are questionable. To say that whatever he does is godly, that's ridiculous. 
Anyone that says that, there's no such person on earth that's that way. There's no such person. How he reacted, my personal opinion, I think he could have behaved a lot better. I don't just mean this week. I think he could have won the election if he wanted to. Well, I don't know if he he wanted to, but I mean if he really did the right thing. I think he could be his own worst enemy. But it's not really what I want to comment on here. The point of the matter is, it could be that a shlichus is over. And maybe sometimes when your shlichus is over, finally you don't, you don't necessarily do the right things or the best way to make sure that your legacy and all the changes that you implemented, the good things you did remain, now could be reversed, unfortunately. The Senate was lost. The House, of course, is controlled by Democrats. And now the presidency. So could he have done better for the positions? I'm sure he could have. But am I going to call him a villain that he's the cause of 400,000 deaths or 300,000 deaths? No, COVID is the cause. Did he do everything possible? I personally feel that any president would have been challenged. And I don't know if another president would have done necessarily much better. But that's a personal opinion and I'm not going to necessarily fight over it. Because the people who hate him definitely don't agree. The people who love him, no matter what he does, is absolutely great. And you see where I'm coming from. I'm coming from a Torah point of view. So it could possibly be like Akashvedish who was definitely led by God, did some good things for the Jewish people, also was a hafochfoch, and some say he was a melech tipish, a fool, some say he was just wishy-washy. Could be that Trump's shlichus is over. Could it have extended if he behaved in different ways? Perhaps. But Bapoyal, he didn't. So right now, that's what it is. His shlichus, what he did, the good things he did, we applaud. What happened here in Washington, I'm not going to go into a blame game of who, what, did he incite, did he not incite, let, let the pundits and let the politicians. It definitely seems that he definitely fed a movement. Did he want it to go that far? You know, again, the people who hate him will say, absolutely, he's always a fascist. The people who love him will say, it's not about him and, and went too far, blah, 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 you have to understand. Again, I don't want to get caught up in the fray, in the, in the whole uh, the, 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 the nitty-gritty of this, trying to look at the bigger picture. The bigger picture is, yes, this country should always be a safe country. Nobody should be under attack, definitely not in Washington. Are they using it against Trump? Of course they are. Uh, Does that mean that everything was done right? Also not. So you have to take a balance here and not go to extremes. Extremes are never healthy. And Torah and Chassidus help us look clearly at the whole picture. That's how I see it. From the point of view regarding the next question, is also about some of the events happening. Woke. It seems, dear Rabbi Jacobson, it seems to me that our society is increasingly divided over the nature of reality itself. I particularly refer to the woke aspect of it, with narratives of the U.S. being an essentially evil and racist country, blacks still being largely oppressed, and 75 million of people who voted for President Trump being called racists and bigots. If both sides see reality itself, quote-unquote, differently, how can we possibly reconcile? Aren't we heading towards total class civil war? What would the Rebbe say about it? Okay, so just taking off where I left off, the same idea. We can't get immersed in all these partisanships because it's too political, it's too corrupt, it's too many agendas, very hard to get clarity. There's only one Tetis Emes, there's only one Emes, Hashem Alekim Emes and Tetis Emes, a God of truth who gave us a Tetis of truth. You want truth, that's where you go. You don't go to the media, you don't go to pundits, you don't go to politicians. You don't go to doctors, you don't go to lawyers, and you don't go to academics. That's what we, the Jewish people, have always known, and that's what kept us sane and kept us clear-headed. You apply that emes of Teda to these given situations. That's the key. If you go for emes that lives among the media, you go to Pravda. Pravda was the communist newspaper that still exists. That's called emes. That's what Pravda means, truth. You have a newspaper that's called truth. Is that a newspaper you would trust? And when they printed a communist Yiddish newspaper, they called it also MS, spelled <laughs> ironically, Ayin Mem, Ayin Samach. That tells you how true it was, even the title itself, the name itself. You go for MS, you go to Torah. That's the only way to get, be, get above and beyond and transcend what you call maybe a civil war. I don't believe there'll be a civil war because I believe the fundamentals of this country, as the Rebbe said, Malchus Chesed are intact. Can people get into a polarized state? Yes, because I believe most of the people in this country are good people. I think that they're being used. I think the media is blowing things up. I think Trump is definitely a lightning, a lightning rod in both directions. But why should we define this country based on these individuals? This country is based on the Constitution, based on the principles and the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. All people are created equal. 
We all have inalienable rights. That's the foundation of the country. That's what we should be fighting for. So will this pass? It's going to be used by all sides, I'm sure. That's what people do. And we have to be, we meaning anyone that is straight level-headed and clear-sighted, has to look, from, look above it all, look from the bigger picture, look at the bigger picture, and not become part of the problem, be part of the solution, and share it with others. Can that create change? Why not? It can have a ripple effect, a viral effect. But definitely not becoming part of the problem can only hurt the situation. We have our children. We have our families. Make sure that we all see things from that bigger perspective. So, regard to this whole issue with racism, I've already given my thoughts on this. I'll just share them briefly. No one has to preach to the Jewish people about racism. We've been at the brunt, victims of it, from the beginning of time. Talk about this week's Pasha, the Egyptians. 210 years of slavery and genocide. And then go through history. So if anyone has something to say on this topic, it's the Jewish people. And what do we say about it? We don't replay victim. We don't continue with our grievances. We don't continue just saying we're dominated by the fact that we've suffered. Yes, we've suffered, but we are not sufferers. We've become a great nation. As they were afflicted, in direct proportion to that, they thrived and they flourished. That's what we need to teach the blacks, other minorities, anyone that's been discriminated against. It's not justifying discrimination. It's turning it into something that's productive and growthful. When it's turned into a movement that split this, splits this country, where some people are called evil, and this very country is called evil, a country that elected a black president, mind you. There's no Jewish president yet. Why are we crying in the streets? Where's the Jewish president? The time will come or it won't come. That's up to God, up to other factors. There was a black president. That means a black can become, has the opportunity to become a president of the United States. In Georgia now was the first time they ever elected a black senator. A Jewish one as well. So the point of the matter is, is there discrimination? Is there measures of racism? Yes, there's anti-Semitism too. I'm not minimizing. Just pointing out, we have to learn to live with it, grow, educate ourselves, educate others. But the polarization that's, that this is creating is not the solution. So what do we do now? Let's just, for argument's sake, say we give, the, we give every minority everything they want. And then when then becomes a discrimination against other groups, against whites... We have to go back to the basics of this country, which are based on the basics, fundamentals of, of uh, Torah, of what God wants this, human, this world to look like. A, a world with diversity, but harmony within diversity. And that requires lowering the rhetoric, lowering the volume, starting to look at the real fundamental principles upon which our lives are based, and living by it. So that's that. Okay. With that, let's move to the next segment of this program. Well, last week I spoke about a very sad, tragic, serious component, unfortunately, in our society today, especially in our communities, the issue of suicide. I cannot tell you how much response I received, more than, probably more than anything that until this day because so much of it is also beyond us that we can't fathom. And we see that one of the ways that helps people, not guarantee, but helps people is showing care and love and valuing another person, not allowing them to wallow or escape into their isolation or loneliness. So I offered support in any way I can provide or any connections I may have, networking and so on including, I gave my personal cell number, cell phone number. So people have asked me if anyone called me. Well, if anyone called me, yes, quite a few people. I don't regret it in any way. On the contrary, I was very honored, humbled. And one of the people that called me was actually a letter that I read last week. A person who wrote about, help me, I'm ready to commit suicide. So this young person, a 20-year-old, called me on my phone, and said, please share with the people that listen to you, because I listened, I was shocked that you read my letter. I was very touched. It was something I wrote a while back, but you read it. And I tell the people that I'm in a much better place. That it was due to the care and love of others that have, that have helped me. 
and I'm in a much better place. I still have my challenges. And I want to thank you for what you did. So I asked her, would you mind writing this? Anonymously writing it. I'd like to read it in the program. So thank you. She did. And I'm going to read her letter right now. And speaks for itself. And then I'll read a few others. And hopefully this topic will never have to be addressed again. Because once and for all, we'll eradicate it through our love, and through our care, and hopefully anyone we can possibly reach. We'll, uh, with, and that's what we have to do. Don't hesitate ever. Reach out if you see someone that is suffering or some changes are going on. Offer help, offer care. We're not talking about prying or being curious, but really just showing love and care for another. So here's a letter. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I listened to your last podcast where you spoke about suicide, and I was the one who wrote the last two letters you read. One of the letters was before my suicide attempt, and the second letter was a week was a week after my first attempt. I was shocked to hear you read it because it was a few months ago, and because I was thinking about the place I was in at the time, I would say a deep depression, but it wasn't even that. I was barely alive. I was breathing, but was barely living. I wasn't functioning. I wanted to let you know that, thank God, I got out of that with the help of my very supportive friends who are like family to me. Psych wards are not fun, but with the support and care of all my friends constantly checking in, checking in on me, and bringing me things that made it much more manageable. Right now, I'm far from recovered, but I'm living. I feel like I got a life back. Even though it's so hard, I'm not numb. I came from Israel to America to go to a treatment center in February. I'm on the road to recovery, but I do see a light at the end of the tunnel. I have hope, which is something I didn't always have. A few months ago, I wanted to end my life I was done, but now I'm full of life. It's hard as hell, and there's so, so many bumps, but I'm so motivated to get better for myself and for the people around me. I also just want to say for the people who want to give up, for the people who want to end their lives, I'm a living example that you can do it. You can push through. It's hard work. It's definitely not easy, but I've been there. I wanted to die. I know what it's like to have no hope. I'm just glad I didn't succeed in ending my life. It's really just thanks to my unbelievable supportive friends who God so perfectly have placed in my life. Thank you, Rabbi Jacobson, for talking about such an important topic that so many people need to hear, but unfortunately isn't talked about enough. It means the world to me. So I hope those words are coming straight from the heart of this individual. Reach my heart, reach all our hearts. And if need to pass this on to others, please do. Because there are many people who may not be listening to this program. And you may have access to them. So you can just, I just read it. If you want to make a clip of it, make a clip, share it with others. It, it, there's no name, so it's, it protects all the confidentiality and anonymity. But you never know what these words can do for someone. I can tell you from personal experience certain things I've said, certain things that have been said that have changed people's lives, that have saved lives. So even if you're not sure, even if you're skeptical, that 1% chance, isn't it worth it? That 1% chance that you may say a hopeful, kind word that will give somebody, ignite some spark in them, that will help, isn't that worth it? And that's why we talk about this topic, though it's sad and it's painful, but yet we must talk about it. And Mitzrayim again looms large. Mitzrayim is the darkest abyss of all. Perhaps the deepest Mitzrayim of all is someone who comes to a point where they want to end their life. But But now we have a Shemavaya. That means a deeper divine energy within each of us that gives some strength. And we, each of us, that live today, have to do everything possible to reveal that Havaya, that divine power within others. It takes work, like this young lady writes. It's not easy, it's hard, but with support and friends and love and care, we can achieve anything. So that's our obligation, 
our, our responsibility and actually our gift. God gifted us with that ability and we have to do whatever we can to reach others. So please don't be, stand on the sidelines. Be proactive, not reactive. That's what's expected, that's what's demanded, that's what's necessary. And there's no question, if all of us were proactive, much, much can be accomplished, more than we ever could imagine. Continuing on this topic, another letter that came in. Hi, Rabbi. Thank you, thank you for all you do. I think I may have read this last week. Maybe not. If I didn't, I did, I'll read it again. The recent suicide of a young woman in our community has left me feeling very upset. It scares me and honestly makes me question life. I'm not sure exactly what, I'm, what I am asking, but I'm wondering if you could address this recent tragedy and inspire us all with some light. I believe I did read it. Maybe it came in again. Well, that's exactly what I'm doing, and I'm trying to respond the best possible way because light does dispel darkness. Thanks again. Okay, another question. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. I was wondering if the Rebbe ever spoke about bipolar and also suicide. I'd love to hear if there is anything. Also, if someone wants to commit suicide or struggles with thoughts of suicide, even if they are doing relatively well emotionally, can it be that their neshama is tugging them up to Shemaim? Kindly respond, all the best. Regarding the bipolar, I've spoken about it in the past. I'm not going to address that right now. Maybe I'll leave it for later or for another program. The Rebbe has addressed it. And actually, even though the Rebbe uses, I believe, another name for it, in one of the letters of the Rebbe that actually says tefillin, is Meshabed Haleva Amayach, binds the mind and the heart, which is one of the challenges that bipolar and other illnesses uh, cause, a type of dissonance between the two. So that I will leave, as I said, for another time. Just briefly mention that. Regarding suicide, there is actually two letters that I found from the Rebbe. Let me start with that, and then I'll answer the one about Neshamas. It's in Cheli Kedal, Igor's Kedish of the Rebbe, in volume 14. So there's two letters. One is on page uh, 201, one is on page 205. And basically the Rebbe writes there, um, about God runs the world, the first letter, and obviously there's no room for somebody, God forbid, requesting to try to, to go to take their lives. And these are the Rebbe's words, I'm translating from Hebrew. Contemplate within yourself that the neshama, the soul of every individual, is engraved beneath the kisei hakovid, the, the heavenly throne, the, the throne of honor, meaning of God's throne, and descended below and manifested in a body, in a physical body, which is a yirida atzuma. It's an awesome descent. It's an extremely radical and dramatic descent. The neshama going from such a high level down to this world. You can't at all compare the way the neshama is above and the way it's inside of a body. And all this was done is Kedai, Bishvil Pu'ulis, Isha Yisraeli, Alaya Damas All this, despite this radical descent and dramatic journey, was all done for the, for the purpose of a human being in this world on earth to do what is right. To live a life, the Rebbe says, which is learning Torah, Kima Mitzvahs, fulfillment of Mitzvahs, that means every pu'ula or pu'ula, every deed that a person does, the Rebbe gives an example of tefillin, and there is a tremendously great action without any beyond, one, beyond explanation, meaning it's so powerful you can't even put it into words. And the same thing with all Torah and mitzvahs. So when, people contemplate, when someone contemplates on these matters, it will put them into the right state of mind. That the person was given a beautiful life to fulfill the shlichas, the mission of God in this world. Fitting as it is, as it, as, as it is, as it is, as it is uh, delineated in the Torah, the Torah of life. And do so with joy, with simcha, like the Rambam writes, and that's how the Rebbe continue, concludes the letter. One letter. 
In another letter, a shorter one, the Rebbe writes, I'm surprised that you're asking me what my opinion is on how you should behave regarding the matter that you wrote to me, which is that you want to commit suicide, God forbid. You write to me that, it's, that there's no choice. It must, this is no, there's no, no other option. The Rebbe says, no, that's not true at all. And a Jew is not compelled to do anything that's the opposite of God's will. And most important that you need to know, the Rebbe writes, that God runs the world and sends you to this world with a purpose. And whatever you're going through is part of your purpose. And one way or another, that purpose will be realized. So therefore, it's important to align yourself with what God wants for your life. There are more details on this, but I'd rather people read it on their own. I don't want to read it necessarily right now. Now, obviously, I want to just qualify reading these letters that this is not a magic pill the Rebbe giving a solution for it all. The Rebbe stating, as a Rebbe does, what the true facts are. That one, Number one is that an Hashem is on a journey and God sent it to this world. This world is full of pain. And yet you have a shlichus. And you have to connect to that shlichus. The more you connect, the more it will preempt negative feelings about life and taking life. Obviously, the Rebbe understood, and there's many stories that each person needs to find the right people to speak to. But again, when you write to the Rebbe, the Rebbe is telling the Torah approach. So this is meant, you read this, and you think a person right away, okay, let's not be naive that someone can read a letter like this and they'll save their life. But the points are there, and our job is to convey them in the right way, in the sensitive way, to people that we may meet. So I just wanted to explain the Rebbe's letter, not to have to defend it or not to have to qualify it in any way, God forbid, but just put it into context. But you asked if the Rebbe wrote about it? Yes, a lot of what I'm speaking about is based on these principles. But again, it needs to be presented because when a person is in deep pain, whatever you say to them, they can't really hear. So you have to find the right way to say it, the right time to say it, and of course the care and love that's always necessary, that they see that you care about them. So there's something value that can perhaps give that added edge to preempt such tragic events. Okay. Another person wrote, Once tragedy strikes, people are in shock, and all the righteous intentions to make the best of a situation are yet intact and unblemished from the inevitable suffering that ensues. After years upon years, some, are, some aren't blessed with a happy ending. Sure, it is not beyond Hashem's ability to remedy people's pain. A young, a young widow might be blessed with finding a new husband to help her raise her orphan children. And she might not. And she may be praying every single day for it, and it may not come to pass. And then what? Happiness might be faked for an audience, but tears shed in secret leave their mark. Turning the plump freshness of youth into a wrinkled map of pain. Taking one's life comes about from the ruminations of an ailing mind. How are the rest of us, fortunately unafflicted by mental illness, supposed to cope with year after year of unanswered prayers? Why would Hashem put people in this world just to wither in pain? Not everyone's tragedy gets to be turned into a fairy dusted inspiration story. If ending our lives is the unconscionable choice that it is, then what's the recourse for those of us made to deal with unconscionable realities? Entering into the space of these type of questions, which everyone has entitled to, especially people who suffer, is entering into the mystery of existence itself. I, for one, and I would say this to any person on this earth, we are not capable of understanding these mysteries of, number one, why God created life that has often so much pain. Why, in general, life in this world is more painful than the the soul living in heaven. At the end of the day, there's purpose to it. We don't ask the question, why, as the Rebbe writes in letters. We ask, what are we to do about it? The why is only God's domain. We try to understand, perhaps, 
sometimes we get a little understanding. In a, in a very powerful letter that the Rebbe wrote to someone who suffered a great tragedy, losing a mother at a young age, the Rebbe writes that though this is beyond us, but God in his infinite kindness has shared with us some insights for us to get a little sense, the mikzahs that I've writes, a little bit, little inkling of some of God's plans. But generally, it's beyond us. And I find that is not soothing, but it's the most, it's the most calming response at the end of the day. Because to struggle and agonize over why and how do we deal with it, and I'm sorry, not how we deal with it, why, and, why, and the, the pains that you describe, where are you going to go? Someone's going to give an answer for it. I think it was the old Belzer Rebbe that said that even if someone were to come to explain why the Holocaust happened, he wouldn't want to hear. We need an explanation for such tragedy. A tragedy like that is beyond explanation. The most brilliant mind can't speak to a bleeding heart. What we need is strength, not solutions, not answers. We need strengths, powers, what to do, how to, how to approach it, how to move forward. What we do about it, not the why. I've said this many times, and I say it from my heart. I'm not saying this as a philosoph- in a philosophical context. I'm saying it as the, 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 the best possible response a human being can come to. Look at people who've suffered. I thank God I've not suffered like others have suffered. So in a way, I'm, in a way I don't have the credibility to say what I'm going to say now, but I have spoken to people who have suffered. And time and again, you see the formula was they dug deeper, they found greater strengths, they found deeper meaning, and that's what allowed them to build. Can, I, can one judge someone that's broken down and demoralized and, and unable to move forward? To judge them? God forbid. It's between them and God. But those that have moved forward, you always see that they found some deeper purpose. They found some deeper meaning. They found a deeper faith and a deeper trust. Behaved like soldiers, forging ahead. Did not want to perpetuate and exacerbate the pain. In other words, to create further pain and further pain. To like nip it in the bud, make sure that their children and their families and their grandchildren are somewhat immunized, insulated from all that pain. Not that they don't know about it, but don't allow that to define their lives. Suffering does not define our lives. It's what happened to you. It's not what you are. What you are is this neshama that the Rebbe writes about, cutting straight to the chase, the soul that God gave you and the mission that he gave that soul in this world. We can keep our eyes on the ball. It's like driving. You keep your eyes on the road ahead with that in mind, that you have a powerful divine soul within you and a powerful mission that that soul was charged with. That's the key to everything. Now, obviously, there'll be distractions. We all are distracted, especially pain and suffering. doesn't allow you to even focus on the soul. I've spoken to people and say, that's beautiful what you're saying, but I can't even think about my soul. The pain is so great. It's like someone in the middle of a fire, a raging fire. You tell them, hey, by the way, you have a holy soul, a divine soul. It's pure. They can't be thinking. They're thinking about how to get out of this fire that's burning them. So we need to be sensitive to that. But you're still looking for the soul somewhere. You're looking for that moment that will give them the strength to maybe jump out of the fire or minimize it or counter it with the, the, the positive energy that comes from knowing that mission that you have. Okay. I want to conclude this topic, at least for now, with some resources. There's some good resources out there that I've been made aware of. I was on a program of, uh, a, week, a little more than a week ago um, with two professionals. And some of the resources that we have here, I'll give them to you right now. One is um, my3app.org. It's a very good app that's very helpful. These are resources regarding suicide. It's spelled my, M-Y, number three, app.org. And, uh, oh boy, I can't even read what I, uh, I may have to do with my glasses. Okay. One is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. One is suicideispreventable.org. Thetrevorproject.org. And teenlineonline.org. These are four websites. They offer resources. Many of them are 24-7, completely anonymous, hotlines. And of course, there's neshamas.org that is also a great network that can lead you to help anyone that may need help, anyone that knows someone that needs help. Don't hesitate. Check it out. You could do so completely in your own privacy. Find it a safe way to communicate. 
but definitely do not sit quietly. Not yourself or anyone else that you see may need some help. Sending a, a help, a, offering a lifeline can change and save a life. Okay. In somewhat in connection to this topic, but I'd rather not really connect it directly, of course, is the relationship between parents and children. In many instances, in my experience, I've seen parents that tremendously healthy, tremendously powerful commitment and offered support to their children in most difficult situations, whether mental health, suicidal, or other issues children have struggled with. But it's inevitable that parents and children and their relationship is part of the whole process because when it's healthy, it can be tremendous help. If there's issues between parents and children, it's not helpful. But obviously the topic I'm moving on is not necessarily to the extreme of suicide. It's the general, the general attitude to parents and children. So I decided to cover a whole many questions that have come in over the months about this topic. I don't believe we'll be able to cover them all, but I'll begin. So I'm moving now to parents and children. Okay. So this began a few weeks ago. I spoke about uh, a young woman writing, wrote to me, um, which I read out loud, about how can I improve my relationship with my father who focuses more on my spiritual, my religious life, than on my, my human life, my physical life. So that evoked a whole bunch of questions. And I went back to see questions that were not yet addressed in this genre. And that's what this is about, what we're covering right now. But it was a follow-up to a few weeks ago when I asked that question. Okay. Oh boy, there's a lot here. Okay, let's begin. Follow-up to improving relationship with parents who focus more on the spiritual life than on the human. That was that letter, yeah. How does one respond to a husband who chooses not to connect and provide unconditional love to his children because they are more modern. He specifically said because his children are not into Torah, not into Torah learning like him, quote unquote, he doesn't want to relate to them and is disappointed in them. To clarify what I refer by more modern, I don't mean not religious. This is in reference to their choice of clothing, specifically jeans, their choice of conversation, and not keeping all Hasidic customs, chumras. I have tried every intellectual approach that I know from giving examples of our Ovis, our patriarchs, to our loving Chabad approach based on Chassidus. My children resent their father because of his intensity with Judaism, no happiness, and his lack of emotional connection to them. I'm always pained when I hear this because a parent, as the Rebbe writes in letters, I don't have to quote the Rebbe, this is also natural, but when you it always brings to mind a letter that I once read from the Rebbe, that I always believe, the Rebbe writes, that a mother and a father, that their first priority is not their own interest, but their children's interest. So as soon as you hear this, you say to yourself, What's, how do you get to this guy? Now, I'm not judging him. I don't know who it is. I don't know all the circumstances, like I always point out. There may be details here that are not shared. But I've seen enough of this to be able to react to it. Again, qualifying that it may not be the exact case. That they're more committed, a parent, to their religious standards than to their children's care. I mean, first of all, the first thing that the Torah says is, teach your children, educate your children. Now, I understand this person would probably turn that around and say, that's what he's doing. But educate your children's chanech l'nar al Education comes with love. The Rebbe teaches lahazir agdelem alaktanim in the beginning of Parsha Emer lahazir illuminate, not just warn, not just prevent, illuminate your children. And it doesn't take much common sense to understand that an education that's loving, and kind and compassionate will be much more effective. To be able to create a rift between a father and children because he doesn't believe, doesn't respect their standards are not his, is a big problem. He needs help, to be very honest. Now, when he needs help, and not necessarily professional help, he needs a mashpia. He needs someone to talk to, to understand what priorities are. Sometimes you need to take a walk with your children. Sometimes you need to play with your children. You need to create that connection. What's happening here? He's locked in, dug into his principles. They're growing further apart from his children. 
what's this thing is going to, what kind of ending is that going to lead to? That there'll always be tension and strain. Yes, the children hopefully will marry good marriages, build their lives, but what relationship will they have to with their father? What memories will they have? So above all, the first is Yemin Mekadevis. Smel Decha is only a last resort and also minimally. The first and most important thing is Av, love, kindness, care. Then you have much more effect on your children. Unfortunately, this, what you write in this letter about your husband is more common than not. Well, I, you know, that's a strong statement. I don't want to say it's more common than it. It's more common than we think it is. That would be better stated. And the only way to respond to it is to look at Teir and again, where Teir and tell us what to do about these things. I don't know how to get through to your husband. Maybe, he, you know, because if fighting with him will just make it worse, in my opinion. To get him to speak to Mashpia, to listen to someone. People like this often don't listen to anyone. Then you say, one second, the same Teir, the same Rebbe that says, learn Teir and live up to the highest standard, also says, talk to someone. There suddenly, the chumras go away. They're suddenly not so stringent in that matter. But that's the blind spots that all human beings have. Again, I'm not criticizing. But you have to find some soft spot. Maybe someone he knows, someone he respects. I mean your husband, I'm addressing that. But overall, I'm saying this to everyone, the way to deal with it is not through battle. Very often I see wives, or the other way around, husbands telling their wives, their wives are very strict. They start fighting with them. What are you doing to the children? It just becomes another battle. And people who have this type of attitude are usually, let's be honest, they're escaping behind their religion. It's not necessarily because they're the biggest Yerushalayim. It's escaping. That's their comfort zone. And they can't get out of it. And even Alpitaita, Alpitaita says sometimes you have to be mavatan on some things in order to be able to create a connection. A person can't do that. Is gonna, you're going to have difficulty having a conversation with that person as a spouse. So you have to be careful how to tread. You have to know also the other circumstances. I don't know the relationship between you and your husband in other matters. Is he that way with you as well? And what your, and what your personality is like? Somewhere you have to find an opening, and often it's good with another party, to open something up, a door of relationship. Sometimes children, interestingly, when they mature enough, they come to the parent and they say, listen to me, you made my life miserable and I want to talk to you about it. Some parents are responsive. Some, again, dig in and they're not. So a lot of different options here. But definitely for the record, there's no question. A parent's first obligation is to be kind and loving to a child. And if a child is for some reason being lax in something that you think is so important, no, you don't get even by cutting off or punishing them by uh, not speaking to them. That's not the way to go. You're the parent, only father they will ever have. So you have to be very kind and compassionate and very sensitive to this matter. Okay. Because of time limits, um, I'll read another one, and then the others I'll wait for next week, and I'll go to the other topics that I want to address. Okay. What can I do since my son suddenly stopped talking to us? His parents. He didn't say what bothers him, but suddenly cut off his relationship with us. He may have disappointments of some things that happened, but won't discuss it or his feelings. Maybe he doesn't want to be chutzpedik. How can we regain our relationship? Well, this question you're asking me immediately evokes a bunch of questions I would have in return. Let me say, suddenly, stop talking to us. That sounds to me pretty radical. That means something happened. So what provoked it? Is there anything you know that provoked it? Did something happen in school? Did you check it out? It could be something something occurred. Maybe someone touched him the wrong way. Someone hurt him. I don't not necessarily within the family. We, we never know. It could be any situation. She must get to the bottom of what's going on in his life. Because there could be something you need to address and he's not going to bring it up. Second question I have, is it really suddenly? Did it, the attitude, the before that everything was perfect? And I'm not questioning that what, what you're saying, but that's what I would like to know before I fully respond. In this type of way, if you can't get to your child directly, and you should first try everything possible, kind, with kindness. Be kind, speak a bit. Don't reciprocate. Don't fight fire with fire. Since he's not speaking to you, you also get angry at him. Show kindness. 
and separately, not father and mother together. Don't sit them down together because that usually doesn't work well. I would suggest talking to him as a mother to a child. You also don't say how old he is, I think. Yeah, that's also important to what his age is. And just try to reach to his heart. And not like say, what's bothering you? Don't say that. Just say everything. You know, try to get a conversation going. If all that doesn't work, maybe there's a sibling that he's close to that can speak to him. Maybe there's a friend. Maybe there's an outsider. Maybe there's someone you can take him to and say, you know, it looks to us that something's bothering you. You don't want to speak to us. Maybe you want to speak to somebody. Just don't don't give up. You're fine. You knock at every door. But don't be a pest. Don't become someone that he's going to try to avoid because you're just just suffocating him. So you have to be done wisely and with balance. That's my initial response. If you want to contact me for more details, just write your email address or contact us and give us, your, uh, your, give us some contact information because in the forum on chassidahsupply.com, there's no, it's all anonymous. We need your contact info if you want to speak about this further with us. Okay, let me go to the chassidah's question and then we'll go to the essays. Good. The chassidah's question is the following. What is the mimer, what is this mimer called, the frumer va'era? So there's a mimer referred to in Beis Shvat in Yayim Yayim. He cites a story with the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, the Friedrich Rebbe, saying that there's a mimer that was said by the Alter Rebbe in Tovkuf Nundal, the mimer that he would repeat every, two, every three years approximately, every two, three years he says there, I believe. And it's, it, was, it was coined the Frum of Era. And the Rebbe Rashab explained why. In the Tophreis Samach Dalad, in the Teir Sholem, he speaks about it. In a Ve'era Fabrengen, the Rebbe said the Maimon in Tophshin Yud Beis and Tophshin Chavov. Tophshin Yud Beis, the Rebbe again, the Frum of Ve'era. Frum of Ve'era is not printed in Teir Er, as he says there in Ayim Yem. It's printed today in, er, in Memoria Admura Zakum Parshias, and with its Samach Tzadik and Ere Teir with additions and a gloss. Rab Hillel Parshias said a Maimon based on it as well. Says the Rebbe Rashab that this was a maimer. Why was it called the Frum of Eira? Because it was a maimer by the Indian of Leyidach Bemen and Nidach. That Leyidach, nothing is pushed away at the end. Everyone is ultimately received back and has a way back of return. And he speaks very intensely about a person's obligation in this life, especially how to use time. The Rebbe Rashab says that he's not Mekana. He does not envy those that were there during the time of the maimer, because the Rabbeim, when they said a maimer, it was the place where the Alter Rebbe, when the Alter Rebbe said a maimer, that was the place where he was at. The Rebbe Rashab says, so it was very, very intense. Meredik, he calls it. He says the word abezer chsidis. Abezer means, bez means angry. But he means very strong, intense chsidis, very demanding. And that's why it was called from a ve'era, because it evoked a type of awe. Oh, I said it was meredik. Again, the Rebbe Rashab says he doesn't envy those that were there because it must have been very awesome. When you read this Maimon, you see, you see a certain type of intensity of how every person is responsible in their behavior and how they use their time. And that's the expression used. So the Frum of Eder became the way to describe this particular Maimon. You can look it up more in details, as I said, in Teda Shalom, I believe, page 86. And uh, of course, the Hayyem Yem, Beis Shvat, that talks about it more. So it's relevant to this week's Pasha, by Eda. Maybe because of Eda, the darkness, the Rebbe, the, sorry, the Alter Rebbe, said a mimer in a sense to bring a deeper light, a type of that type of intensity that this mimer evokes. Yeah, it reminds me actually that some of the themes in this mimer remind us of Leitia Mishakela Tovshin Yud Beis as well, where the Rebbe speaks about as Mispri Yemecha Mala about a person, how a person trembles. The Rebbe was crying very strongly as he said that mimer, how a person trembles and is concerned whether they're using every moment. Very similar to some themes in this Maimer in the Frum of Eira. Okay. Now, we conclude always with, we're now the 11th place winners of this year's 6th annual My Life Citizen Applied Essay and Creative Contest. And um, so briefly, we cover every week four, the, the, fourth, the, four, the four winners in different categories. The English Essay, Hebrew essay for men, Hebrew essay for women, and a creative. So we have The Lamplighter by Rivka Cohen, age 24, based on a woman international, her hometown, Jerusalem, Israel. Okay, 
That's the essay in English. The S, which you can look up at chsidasupply.com and you can see the actual essay. I encourage you to do that. Because of time limits, I'm not going to right now summarize. You can look at yourself. The essay in Hebrew men is Chaim Kalim Imanoshim Kosher. To make an easy life with difficult people. How to live in a, in a calm way when you're dealing with difficult people. Mr. Yahal Dahan, Tzvat Israel. The 11th place essay in Hebrew for women. Masa Primi Legula, the inner journey toward redemption. This is Bina Nachshan in Jerusalem. And finally, the creative, which is a poem, poetry, My Garden. Basi Legani, Legani. By Yosef Kaufman, age 27, a sofer in Johannesburg, South Africa. The English and the creative essay and the, in creative, and the creative presentation you can see at chsidasupply.com. And the Hebrew ones is adiraloy.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. And with this, my friends, we conclude My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 339. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a very freilich and chedesh shvat. It should be a redeeming chedesh shvat, a yifutzum enesecha, and osimar damalka meshichi chedesh shvat. Be blessed, be healthy, and be well. Thank you. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidah Supplied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.